Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We are going to be reading from the first seven verses in chapter 7 and talking about those. I was talking to somebody recently about just how I think about preaching and I think how we should think about preaching. And it just reminds me of this verse that, uh, that Paul wrote to Timothy where he said, um, don't neglect the public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. And really there's three things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to just read the Bible. So we do that. And if as long as we did that, that's a good thing. It's worth coming to church just for that. The second thing is we're supposed to explain it, to teach it, explain what it means. And then the third thing is just encourage obedience. Um, that's, that's what we do with the Bible. And as I think about the book of 1 Corinthians, it is so good. And often, uh, and I've said this before, often people look at the book of 1 Corinthians and they just feel like, oh man, that was Paul's worst church. They're the ones who always criticized him. They must have just been a thorn in his side. And the Philippian church, oh, they were so loving, he must have loved them. But the thing that I think about as I read this book is Paul had to be so thankful for the Corinthian church. Because this is a group of people who were saved from utter debauchery. Like if you think about what is the most sinful place on earth, where's the most sinful culture? Where's the place where people are doing the worst, most rebellious things? That was Corinth. And Paul goes in there and he preaches and they get saved. And here's a church full of people with all kinds of problems, but they're saved. And one of the things that we've been hitting recently, we talked about unity. We talked about how God works in the heart to bring people to salvation, what spiritual life looks like. And now he's hit this section where he's just talking about sexual immorality. And what is so cool about it is that the people that he is talking to, their lives have been totally ravaged by sexual immorality. There's there's not a sexually debauched thing that could be happening or that somebody could do that was not happening in Corinth and that had not been happening in the lives of the people that he's preaching to. And that was the thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11, is he's just talking about this terrible sin that you're supposed to get out of your life. And then he says to them, and such were some of you. And it's just that reminder that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. In Christ, you can have a new life. You can have forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. When you become a Christian, you can genuinely look at yourself and you can say, that wasn't me. This is me. Man, what an incredible blessing. And then we looked uh, last week at just the seven reasons we didn't think, or two weeks ago, the seven reasons that we're not supposed to be sexually immoral. Uh, you were shocked that I made it through that, right? Seven. You didn't think that was going to happen when I said that. Um, but we got through that. So incredibly important, such important challenges for us. But one of the things that we find out is that sexual immorality, that's wrong. But sex was made for marriage. Sex is not bad. And a lot of the problem that we have in Christianity is that We don't talk about it. We don't model what healthy sexuality is. And and we just allow everybody to be speaking that shouldn't be speaking. Like two weeks ago, I was just saying when it comes to sex, everything is backwards. 
The people who are not supposed to be having sex are having sex. The people who are supposed to be having sex are not having sex. The people talking about it are the ones spewing out falsehood. And the people who should be talking about it are ashamed and quiet. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You know, and I, I shared this two weeks ago. The parents who keep their kids home from youth group when they're talking about sexual purity. It's like, I just think, what are we, insane? Like, don't you know what your kids hear and see every day? You're, you're not keeping them away from this challenging topic. You are removing the only voice that they should have in their life. And it's just crazy how people do that. So Proverbs chapter 1 says this. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city, of, uh, the city gates, she speaks. And, and in Proverbs chapter 1, the challenge is you need to listen to God's wisdom. And one of the things that I want to point out here is that wisdom is crying in the streets. Wisdom is out there. And what's unfortunate is in some cultures and in some churches and in some families, wisdom is not crying as loud as wisdom should be crying. Um, but the, you'll also notice that there's noisy streets. There are tons of voices out there. And so we need to make sure that we are listening to the right ones and we are ignoring the wrong ones uh, because there's all kinds of advice. There's all kinds of wisdom. The question is, do we reach out and embrace God's wisdom? So um, in this passage, uh, it's kind of a little bit challenging. And there are people who read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the whole chapter, and they say, this is not actually inspired scripture. Like people who will say, everything in the Bible is inspired scripture, but then they look at 1 Corinthians 7 and they go, this actually isn't scripture. This is just Paul giving his opinion. And what I want to encourage all of you, I'll, I'll tell you why people say that. It won't, that sounds insane until I tell you why, and then you'll go, oh, that's why they say that. But they're wrong, and we'll point that out. <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just read. Um, I'm going to read last week's passage and then this week's passage. And I think one of the things that is so significant when it just comes to this whole topic of sexual purity is that we cannot communicate that sex is a bad thing. We cannot be silent about it. Um, we need to make sure everybody knows it's a good thing. In our family growing up, we were never graphic. But also, we never hid from our kids that Michelle and I had a healthy sex life. They, they needed to know that. Because when we're telling them, stay away from other people, do not be sexually immoral, they need to know that it's not because we think sex is a bad thing. It's because it's only for marriage. And, and yet you have, anyway, my suggestion is if you're married, don't be ashamed that this is a part of your life. Uh, let me read 1 Corinthians 6.12. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? 
Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the <laughs> seven reasons not to be sexually immoral. God says not to. That's in almost every sermon. Uh, the second one, uh, sexual sin's destructive and enslaving. Sexual sin's not what God intended. Your body is Christ's body. It is a sin against your own body. It defiles God's temple, and that's you. And the last one is that you don't own you. God does. So that's how it's not supposed to be in- expressed. But where is it required to be expressed? Can't have sex outside of marriage you must have sex in marriage. Michelle and I used to tease with our friends and just say, we want to be extra spiritual, so we're going to wait for a year after we're married just to consummate things. And our friends always would tease us and say, yeah, we'd have to confront you because you'd be in sin. And that would be true. 1 Corinthians 7.1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, okay, here's our first statement, and I'm going to read you a few more in this chapter, but this is the first statement why people go, oh, this isn't actually God telling us what to do. He says in verse 6, now, as a concession... Not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to widows, I say it is good for them if they remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so this is what Paul is what we're going to be looking at today. And uh, it's like, I hope nobody feels uncomfortable. <laughs> we don't talk about stuff like this in church very often, but we should talk about this stuff more. So here's the, um, uh, th- the, the issues in the passage. And if you have your Bible, just look at them. I'm going to show you um, four of them in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. The first one is just where Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I'm going to come back and explain what Paul's talking about there, but I will just tell you, he's not saying that everything he says here is just not a command. It's just, he's just kind of saying it. That's not what that means. We'll come back to that later. Um, In verse 10, 
Um, he says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So he's going to talk about not separating, not getting divorced. And he's going to say, God says this. And then uh, two verses later in verse 12, he's going to say to the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, you could take that. This is my opinion. Uh, God's not saying this. I'm saying this. <laughs> Let me just tell you, that's the wrong way to understand that. But could you see how somebody could get there uh, when, they, when they hear that? Or the very last one where it says in verse 40, yet in not my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. So Paul's just going, you know, uh, this is something I think. And, you know, I, I got the Holy Spirit too. So, you know, it's my opinion and you should take my opinion. So you could see how somebody might read those statements and they might say, oh, we could just toss 1 Corinthians 7. We don't really need to pay attention to it. Read it, take it, or leave it. Now, <laughs> many people, that's how they approach all of the Bible. Uh, but there are some people who take uh, 1 Corinthians 7 that way. So what I want to do is I just want to point out a couple things to you. Like as you just think about what is written in the New Testament and how do we think about that. Okay, we are going to get into the whole sexual activity in marriage. But let's just jump into this part first. Um, 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.13, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians and he's talking to them about how they responded to the things he told them. And this is what he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. When Paul preached, the Thessalonians realized this is God's word, and they accepted it as that. Um, 1 Peter 1.21, uh, this is a comment about all of Scripture, and it's specifically referring to the Old Testament, but it actually includes all the New Testament letters as well. This is what Peter says, 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Nothing written in the Bible is something that somebody just made up and came up with. Nothing. Um, that doesn't mean that men didn't write the Bible. But look at this. It's saying that nothing that was written came from men. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So nothing Paul says in this chapter or anything he writes was produced by his own will. So then how did it happen? No prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, when you take verse 40 where Paul says, I also have the Holy Spirit, um, Paul is just saying that the Holy Spirit causes me to write the things that I write. Paul understood that when he wrote, it was him it was his personality, it was his experiences, it was his vocabulary, but it was the Holy Spirit guiding every single thing that he wrote so that it was perfect and without error and so that we can look at what Paul wrote and we can say Paul wrote it. We can also look at what Paul wrote and we can say God wrote it. And one of the things that you're going to see, which we will dig into more in this passage, but when Paul says, the Lord says this, not me, 
He's just saying, I'm quoting Jesus. If you go back to the Gospels about what Jesus said about marriage, and then you read what Paul wrote right there, Paul is saying, this is what Jesus says, and this is how you should apply it in this situation. Paul's quoting Jesus. And then when Paul says, I write this, not the Lord, he's just saying, I'm not quoting Jesus. And you can search everything that Jesus said about marriage. And you want to know what Jesus never addressed? He never in Scripture addressed what a person should do if they were married to a non-Christian who said, I want to stay married to you, or if they were married to a non-Christian who said, I want to divorce you. Like, Jesus never addressed that. And what does Paul address there? He addresses something that Jesus never addressed. And actually what Paul is doing is he is putting his own words on the same level as Jesus' words because he is writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this is not a chapter that we should disregard. This is just evidence that God is inspired Paul and that everything he writes is from God. And so if we think about it in that term, in those terms, we'll understand that. By the way... Um, how did Peter understand the things that Paul wrote? And uh, this is, goes back to this chapter. Could you say, hey, some of those phrases are kind of confusing and they're hard to understand? Like, could you define it that way? Let me tell you what Peter says about what Paul wrote. And he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation... Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he's acknowledging that when Paul writes, he's writing with wisdom that comes from outside of him. So that's, that's one thing to notice. As he does in all of his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So some of the stuff Paul writes is hard to understand. And then this last phrase is really important to pay attention to. And that is, there are some things that he writes that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. When somebody takes these confusing statements in 1 Corinthians 7 and says we should disregard those, they are twisting things to their own destruction. But then look at this last phrase. They twist these things to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. If you think about what that means grammatically, if he would have said, as they do scripture, then what he would have been saying is, they twist what Paul says, and they twist scripture. But the fact that he says, as they do the other scriptures, means what Paul wrote was scripture. That was scripture. And the other scriptures are the Old Testament and all the other things that have been written. So Peter calls Paul's writing scripture. And he says, ignorant and unstable people twist it. You know, there are so many people who will say things to you like, the, the apostles never planned to, for us to understand their writings as scripture. That is wrong. And this is one example, but there are many ways that we could demonstrate that that is not true. Okay, all of that was just to say, 
we should pay attention to uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. So let's jump in there. So uh, let's just jump into this. Here's the first one. Uh, we want to talk about uh, why should we have a healthy sex life in marriage? Why is that important? And uh, Paul's actually talking about a bigger thing. If you look at verse 1 through 16 in 1 Corinthians 7, he's actually talking about singleness and marriage. Should you be single? Should you be married? Um, how do you think about singleness and marriage? So that's kind of his, that, that's a topic that he's going to address here. But in addressing that, he focuses in on sexual behavior and marriage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to come back to the whole singleness and marriage thing, but we're just going to address what Paul says about marriage, sex and marriage. So we need to have a self healthy sex life. And here's the first reason. It's because it's God's unique gift in marriage. And that's something that you see in 1 Corinthians 6, the two become one flesh. It's something that we see all through the Bible, everywhere it says, and the two become one flesh. Um, Jesus refers to the two becoming one flesh as he's talking about divorce because sexual behavior is part of marriage. It is a required part of marriage, and it is only to be in marriage. And so this is a good, unique gift. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, 1, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I like how that's translated. It actually in Greek just says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. But not touching a woman is a euphemism for sexual relationships. So it's, it's translated correctly here. And he's just saying it's good not to have sex. And um, if you think about his argument in this passage, having sex is equated with being married. So he's not just talking about sexual relationships. When he says it's good not to have sex, that could also be understood. It's good not to be married. And so if you say you're having sex, that means you're married. And if you're not having sex, that means you're not married. And so that's how closely Paul ties this. That's, that's the significance of him opening this section with those words. And then he says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Look at verse 9. He's just saying, if you can't exercise self-control, then get married. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so this is a good gift. And, and this desire, sexual desire, like, I mean, I was thought about giving you guys a bunch of quotes and stuff, but it would be completely meaningless to tell you something you already know. Um, sexual desire is pretty powerful, right? It controls advertising. It runs the world. It does all kinds of crazy things. People ruin their lives over it. I mean, there's just all kinds of, like, it is so powerful. And it's so powerful because God made it that way. He had a purpose. God put sexual desire inside of people. And when Adam and Eve fell and the world became sinful, there is not a single part of us that was not polluted that's called depravity, like that's the theological word for it. But when Adam sinned and when creation fell, every single thing about us has been broken. Our bodies are broken. We get sick. Our minds are broken. We don't think rightly. Our emotions are broken. We don't feel the way God wants us to feel. And so God has made us and he's put desires in us. And the problem with people thinking I should just express whatever desire I have is it's a failure to understand that when Adam sinned and the human race fell, 
everything about us broke. And so there are broken things about us that we say, yes, I feel this way, but it's not right. And yes, I think this way, but it's not right. And I look at my body, and I see things in my body, and I look, get on the scale, and I feel like this isn't right, you know? <laughs> There's no part of us that has not been touched by sin. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, just says, let marriage be held in honor among all, so marriage is good. And then he immediately says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. People take that verse and say, you can do whatever you want when you're married. I am not debating that. I'm just saying it didn't come out of that verse. When it says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, it's saying marriage is good. And don't mess up your marriage by bringing other people into your, your marriage bed sexually. Like, don't have sex before you're married. Don't look at things you shouldn't be looking at when you're married. Don't compare your sex life to all your friends' sex life. That's their sex life. It's your sex life. And so the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Don't defile it before you're married. Don't defile it after you're married. Don't defile it in the midst of your marriage. And 1 Timothy 4.1 just talks about how one of Satan's, one of the demonic messages is to say, don't get married. Like that's satanic to tell people that it's wrong to be married. And so we have all that scripture. By the way, Paul wrote that whole thing about not telling people not to get married. But what he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7, which we will get to later, is being single is a good thing. You don't have to get married. Like that's part of his whole argument here. So sexual desire exists and it's powerful because God made it. You want to know why God made it? Uh, we, we read about it Genesis chapter 2. So God creates everybody. He brings all the animals before Adam. And uh, he's looking at Adam, and this is what he says. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then it talks about how Adam names all the animals and notices, hey, there's no match for me. And then God puts a deep sleep on him, takes a rib out of his side, and makes Eve. And then Adam looks at Eve and this is what Adam says in verse 24. He says, um, well, actually, I'm going to read verse 23, and you can see verse 24. Then the man said, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then this is stated, and people argue about whether God said this or Adam said it. But either way, it's what God said. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This gets read in wedding ceremonies, hold fast. It's like stick like glue. It's like let it be this inseparable bond. And when Jesus is talking about divorce, Jesus says what God has joined together, let no man separate. Like marriage is permanent. And what is one of the things that God did? Not the only thing. But what is one of the things that God did to make marriage permanent. Well, um, therefore let a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. When God invented marriage, he invented sex. Like those things go together. It's, it's, you can't have one without the other. You have to have both. And, and God created that. And God intends it 
to be something that bonds us together powerfully. And what does Satan want to do? He wants to take what God meant from, for good, and he wants to use it to drive a wedge between you and the person you're married to. He wants you fighting over your sexual relationship. Instead of this being a powerful bond that brings you together, he wants you hurting each other's feelings with it. He wants us to be this thing that's supposed to be so powerful in helping you have intimate communication. He wants it to be this thing that you don't talk about. Like that's what Satan does with God's good things is he pollutes them and he tears apart what God intended to bring people together. And so, um, you know, when we think about this, uh, I want to just address this whole idea of differences in sexual desire. It's weird to me that people read this passage and feel like this passage is just another way <laughs> that men abuse women. You know, it's like you read this people to some people and they're so offended. You, know, you read this passage they're just so mad. They're so offended. You know, how could you say that? This just means that, that men get to abuse their wives as they have throughout history. And it's like they paint it with that. And I just think, how ridiculous. Like, did you read it? And this is the ironic thing. People who want to argue against male leadership, the Bible is clear that God intends men to lead their families and God intends men to be, lead in the church. That is not to say that women are not leading. It does not to, to mean if you're a woman, then be quiet and stand on the side and don't use your gifts. Like I taught on that whole stuff. That is not what that means, but God has roles for men and women. And people who want to say there are no roles between men and women, you want to know where they go to prove that? This passage, they go to this passage to say, see, it's equal. And it, it's just so weird to me that they're so offended with this passage on one hand, but in a different conversation they want to go, no, it says everybody's equal. Right. You know, it's kind of crazy how people do that. You know, when you think about um, different sexual desires, um, different levels, like different desires about uh, what to do, when to do it, how often to do all those things when it comes to sexual desire. There's differences between men and women, right? And what I think is funny is how stereotypical our culture is and, and how we label people in ways that are just inaccurate. I'm not saying that generally speaking there aren't characteristics, but I just have to tell you, I know as many people who struggle with sex because wives want to have sex more than their husbands as the other way around. Like, we just label that like a certain direction, and it is not a certain direction. Um, I remember when I was, like, 19, I'm working construction, and the guy I'm working with just got married. And we're just, you know, we talked about everything, you know, all day long. We're just building houses and stuff, and so, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff. But one day, he's like, he just goes, Raj, man, I'm married, and I'm really kind of having a hard time. He says, this is going to probably sound good to you as a single 19-year-old. He says, but my wife wants to mess around every single day. And he's like, I just, I can't take it. It's too much for me. And he's complaining about it. And he's just like, that sounds good to you because you're 19 and not married. But trust me, it's a difficulty. Um. When I've talked to people who have said, I want a divorce, 
and they say, I want a divorce, and they list sexual behavior as the reason they want a divorce. Um, I'll just tell you, and I'm not, I didn't do research. This is just my own personal experience. More women have said to me, I am in a sexless marriage. I can't take this, and I want out. More women have told me that than men. And I'm not saying that that represents everybody, but I'm just saying that we paint people with stereotypes that aren't true. And um, the, the whole issue with working out differences, um, what an incredible opportunity to communicate. You talk about intimacy in conversations, that's a hard thing to talk about. When Michelle and I got married, that was the hardest part of our life for me to talk about. Like, it was easier for her to talk about stuff than for me. But it was really hard for me to talk about stuff. Like, I'm not a sensitive person. But when it comes to that kind of stuff, I could be incredibly sensitive. And so when you talk about intimacy and communication, differences in that area allow us to develop incredibly um, good communication, intimate communication, connection, where we're loving each other and caring about each other and being sensitive to each other. The differences that God has allowed are not bad. Those are good when we approach them the way God tells us to. Um, you know, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to put each other first. That's the title of the sermon. This whole passage is about, it's not about you. It's about loving and caring the person for the person that you're married to. And so it's just differences allow us to actually put in practice what God says. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Look out for the interests of others. And what about sex and conflict? I said this a couple weeks ago. I said your sex life should not rise and fall with your level of conflict. And... Um, I want to just comment on that for a second. Here's my illustration. If your spouse got hit by a car and was laying out in the street bleeding and you guys were in a fight, would you call 911? Or would you go, if we had a good breakfast, I'd have called 911. But <laughs> right now I'm ticked at you, so you just lay there and bleed. Um, in a very real way. Your sexual relationship has to do with just caring for another person that should be so deep and it should transcend whatever bickering or fighting is going on. And what is so sad is that instead of that area of life being something that pulls people together when they're having conflict, that pulls people together and just reminds them how much they love each other, that, that helps to overcome difficulties, Difficulties end up shutting that area of life down, destroying something that God has intended to pull people together, and creating all kinds of destructive temptations. You know, all marriages are hard, right? But we don't not love each other because things are hard. Um, one of the things I always tell people is you only got this life to be married. Like if you're unhappy in your marriage, you know, the Bible tells us there's no marriage in heaven. Jesus in a side conversation about angels kind of, you know, or, you know, he's talking to some people about marriage. He makes comment about angels, but he just says there's no marriage in heaven. You need to enjoy being married to your spouse in this life. It's all you've got. It's one of the things that, I mean, I look forward to everything about heaven, but I'm kind of bummed Michelle and I will not be married there. And at the same time, I do want to throw this out if you're single. Um, being single is not bad. Paul says being single is good. And I've had some friends 
who uh, couldn't function, couldn't live because they weren't married. They were just miserable all day, every day. And then they made a bad marriage choice and they're even more miserable and they long for the days of their single misery. They're like, man, that's like heaven on earth. I would way rather have that. In fact, Michelle and I are at a, we're at a wedding. I, I heard this conversation between Michelle and her friend and I'm not going to point out the guilty person, but it was so sweet. The couple's up in front. They're getting married. They're saying their vows. The girl starts to cry. And one of them leans over to the other one and says, she thinks she's crying now. <laughs> she's like, yeah, just wait. She's going to be crying. There won't be tears of joy. Hey, marriage is hard, right? And that's not a bad thing. Those are things that God uses to bless us and to encourage us. And this is... Um, the second reason that we should be sexually active in marriage is because it protects against internal temptation. First uh, Corinthians seven two says, "Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband." I mean, again, he's saying your own wife and your own husband. Like sex and marriage go together, and he's saying you should get married because you have this passion that God gave you, and there needs to be a place to express that. And so that's a good thing. God made us that way. You know, James chapter 1, verse 13, sometimes we see temptation as external, and sometimes we see it as satanically induced, which it is both. But we also need to recognize that temptation comes just from within us. James 1, 13, let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. He's going to talk about temptation. Look at this in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You have a fallen sinful nature. You have a fallen sinful flesh that desires things and that should not be desired, that desires good things in wrong ways. And it's inside you, and it pulls on you. And then it says, then when desire has, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived, beloved brothers. Um, I want to ask you a question. Um, on the whole thing of sexual desire and passion, it's a reality. Can we acknowledge it? But I also just want to say this, you are not a slave, you are not an animal, you do not have to act on your feelings. That's another thing that the world wants to tell us. And I want to just tell you, the prophet Jeremiah never had sex in his life. John the Baptist never had sex. Jesus never had sex. The apostle Paul may or may not have been married earlier, but is living his life not married. He's not having sex. And I don't care who you are, and I don't care how strong your passion is. For me, I got married at 23. It's not like, okay, well, if you have a powerful sex desire, then go ahead and, you know, but if you can hold it back, then wait till you're married. No, I don't care who you are, and I don't care what's going on. You say no in your life to things that are sinful. It does not matter how much you desire them. Deal with exercising self-control. If you're in a marriage where sex is not what it should be, or you have a spouse that's not engaging in that with you, uh, okay, well, then I'll have an affair because I have to have this outlet for my passions. No. Um, you don't ever do what's wrong. There is never an excuse for sinning because we live for God, not for ourselves. And then I want to ask you this. When somebody has an affair, somebody in a marriage has an affair, who is hurt more? The person who has the affair or the person who is betrayed? Okay, the person who has the affair. 
I would argue so often we think, well, they were off having a good time. They had fun. They had this wonderful little experience. Uh, they, they had a great time while I suffered. Um, I would just say to you that I think by far, and I hope that Michelle and I never experience that in our marriage, and by faith, I, I think we never will experience that. But I'm just telling you, if I have to pick me having an affair or marriage Michelle having an affair, I would way rather that she have an affair than me on a personal perspective. And if that happened, it would be heartbreaking and it would be devastating. But I want to tell you what would be more devastating. What would be more devastating to me if that happened is not the pain that was caused me, but what that would mean to Michelle in her life if she did that. Like, that would be overwhelming and heartbreaking. And often we kind of feel like, oh, yeah, they went out and had fun. No, they killed themselves. They, they sinned against their own body. They sinned against God. They're bringing wrath upon themselves. This marriage that was a gift, and if it's a man who has an affair, the person that God said, you're to love and care for this person. This is my special gift to you. You're supposed to lead them toward righteousness. You're supposed to do everything you can to encourage them and bless them and build them up and appreciate them. This is my treasure that I gave you as a gift. And then you're going to sin against and harm and destroy that person that God gave you as a gift? Man, that, that is unthinkable. It is unbelievable that, any, that that could happen. And so, um, and also, I mean, Proverbs tells us right that, right? It says the immoral person dies for lack of instruction. He wanders off like an ox to the slaughter. He's like this victim of many who have been slain. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, that God will avenge people that do this. Hebrews 13, 4, <laughs> that whole thing I said about the marriage bed being undefiled. And then it just ends that verse by saying, God will judge the sex- sexually immoral and adulterers, the adulteresses. Okay, um, just here, that is absolutely horrible. There is no length you can go to protect yourself against sexual immorality and adultery that's not reasonable. Like Jesus says, cut your arm off, poke your eye out. Like we should use 100% of protection to help these things not happen to us. And what I want you to know is if it's happened to you. Same thing from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And such were some of you. God has forgiveness. He has restoration. He has healing. And sin is devastatingly powerful. But Jesus is more powerful than sin. Um, Here's a third one. The, uh, because the spouse belonged to each other, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. That, that word for um, don't deprive, that word for deprived, I found it one time, in the, one time in the Old Testament in the context of sexual behavior, and it's telling men that they are not allowed to deprive their wives. Like then wives, when wives say they want to have that in their life, you can't say no. And so that's the only verse I could find in the Old Testament. But just this whole thing is saying we own each other. The two have become one. And so, and we both own each other. I don't think that's that confusing. I won't spend more time on that. And then here's the last one. It's because it protects against satanic attack. 
Um, Paul says this, don't deprive one another except perhaps by mutual agreement for a little bit of time that you may devote yourself to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What ends up happening is you have couples who, because they're struggling in their relationship, treat each other in a way that just swings the door wide open for Satan. And it's like you have... um, a husband or a wife who's sexually frustrated. So they have these like built up desires, internal desires. And then you have conflict where you're mad at each other. You're not feeling love. You're not feeling care. And then sometimes we respond sinfully by, by being bitter or being angry. And what do people do when they're bitter and angry? They try to hurt somebody. And so sometimes you'll have guys who in their life or women who in their life, one in three visitors of porn sites are women. And so you have like people who are struggling in their marriage and they're frustrated. And then what do they do? They go hit the internet. And in a sense, they're gratifying some desire in themselves. And on some level, they're harming the person that they're married to. And so like that's, and, and then what happens? That breaks your relationship with the Lord. You know, Bible says as a husband, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, God doesn't hear your prayers. So it breaks your fellowship with the Lord, which is actually the biggest crime in everything that happens in marriage, single most important thing. And then because that gets broken and people who have a habit of doing that kind of thing, sometimes people are off at work, they're talking to their friends. And there's some lady or some guy who's struggling in their marriage too. And then they end up being really um, encouraging and helpful to each other. Next thing you know, there's an affair. And, and I'm just thinking, like, what do you guys fight over? Well, we got to fight because somebody didn't say thank you about the food. And then that just, like, grew up into this big, huge, intense conflict. Really? You, you want to pull the plug on your marriage and send your husband or wife off a cliff over your conflict of what? Something stupid? Or actually, even if it's something in te- in, important? It's like, that's the analogy. If your spouse gets hit by a car, are you still going to call 911? And this area of life is just a commitment that is part of loving and caring about a person. And it does not rise and fall with whatever conflicts we happen to be having. And that is not to minimize the significance of conflicts or having a good marriage. So we will, there's a whole bunch more I plan to say, you know. And we're going to stop right there. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for giving your word. God, I thank you for marriage, the incredible blessing it is to be married. Lord, I just thank you for the incredible freedom that comes from not being married. And some ways life is just so much more simple in how we can be more devoted to you. And yet, God, I just pray that you would help every single one of us love you, that we would open up your word knowing that you give the directions for every part of life Everything that you say is right. God, help us to love it, to embrace it, to not just do it out of obligation, but to wholeheartedly do the things that you've called us to do. In your name.